Welcome to EM Pulse, bringing research and expert opinion to the bedside. We're your hosts, Julia Magana and Sarah Medeiros. I had recently returned back to work again after giving birth and the babies were at home with dad. I had gotten a text message that my daughter was being a little fussy that day and I said that I would take a look at her when I came home. When I got home, I had had just some post-op concerns uh, about my son just as far as um, possibly some infection and I felt her head and she felt a little warm so I took her temperature and she was running a bit of a fever so I am that mom that will just bring her kid to the ER just to make sure that everything is okay. Dad was supposed to be going to work and he decided to come to the ER with me which was not typical of most of our hospital visits or our ER visits. So we got to the hospital and we concentrated on my son because, like I said, I was worried about the infection, but talked about my daughter a little bit and said that she was running a fever and just wanted to make sure that everything was okay with her, that she had been fussy and their dad had brought up the fact that she had gotten her leg caught in the crib um, earlier that day was uh, what he had told me and he told me that he wanted to bring it up so we had asked the doctor to take a look at it so we had him checked out and everything seemed like it could be okay with him they had her checked out and they had an x-ray done and they came back and they said that her leg was fractured. I was in a little bit of disbelief with this because I understand that babies don't just break bones. So there was the understanding that there would obviously be follow-up work to make sure that everything else was okay as well. These are my first children and I have never been in a situation like this before so I kind of just started going with the flow. They were both admitted to the hospital to have full workups done and we just kind of sat there in disbelief and trying to figure out what could have what could have happened that her leg would be broken. And I understood the necessity to do the non-accidental trauma workup, but in my mind, there was still this huge disconnect that this was my daughter and she had to get non-accidental trauma workup done on her. It started to feel like that this wasn't me, this wasn't us. Hi, and welcome back to Impulse. As you can probably tell from our story, we are going to continue the discussion about child abuse in the ED. 
In our last episode, we talked about the app called LCAST that helps us identify injuries on children less than four that are concerning for child abuse and helps us know what are the next steps. I love this app because it gives me data on how concerning that injury is and what the next steps could or should be. This objective approach is important in our evaluation of potentially abused children. Okay, but Julia, I love the app too, and I can follow an algorithm for workup. (laughs) That's great. But I really hate these cases because they are so painful for everyone involved. And frankly, I dislike the uncomfortable conversations. It's hard not to feel angry at the parent when there is obvious abuse. And then sometimes I feel bad for the family because I am following the algorithm, but I really like this family. Yeah. I mean, I think so many people really, truly dislike cases where abuse could be involved for those reasons and and many, many other reasons. Uh, you know, it totally demolishes your flow, the potential for bias, not knowing what to do. I mean, it, there's so many reasons why these are very challenging cases. Um, and that is why today we're going to talk about just another aspect that's uncomfortable, talking to families about abuse workups and reporting. And fortunately, our guest experts today wrote an article titled Improving Communication with Families for Evaluation of Child Abuse. Let's get into it. Hi, my name is Elena Duma. I'm a pediatric emergency medicine physician here um, at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Have been here for over 25 years. And I also worked for about 20 years in our advocacy center, the Mayerson Center for Safe and Healthy Children, as a child abuse physician. My name is Emily Fain. I am a pediatric emergency medicine trained physician, and I work at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. Elena and I worked together uh, when I was doing my fellowship in Cincinnati, which was sort of the impetus for starting some of this work that we'll talk about today. I think we all dread the conversation regarding the need for a child abuse workup, right? We worry about that caregiver's reaction. We worry about fracturing our therapeutic relationship. We maybe even worry about verbal or physical aggression during those events. It's a stressful conversation. I know I don't personally start that conversation without knowing where all the exits are. <laughs> Guys, Let's just say it out loud. Why is this conversation so difficult? I think it's difficult because it can be very emotional for us as pediatricians who care so much about children and want to advocate for their well-being. I think it's hard, particularly if we have children ourselves and how we might identify with that child and that situation. I also think it's difficult, particularly if you have trainees you're working with, because this could be their first experience with this. And it involves so many different disciplines, um, you know, social work and patient services and subspecialists that it can just take a toll on the entire team, depending on what the injuries that the child has. I think many of us that have done these evaluations in the past will reflect on challenging experience we've had in the past. And so, you know, when you're walking into a room, you know, exactly how emotional and difficult this has the potential to be. And so reflecting upon that, I think sometimes gives us some anxiety, just taking a deep breath, knowing that we're having to start one of these difficult and time-consuming evaluations. At the heart of this, there's concern for an injured child, and especially as physicians who have taken an oath to care for their patients and to do what's right for them to help protect them and to keep them healthy and well. It's just particularly emotionally 
difficult for us as providers and just really difficult to not take that into the room when we're going to evaluate these patients and talk with their families. What are some of the reasons that it's so difficult for the families? Like, what's the hard part about this for families? I think that oftentimes families, and again, every situation is going to be a little bit different, but they're worried about their child. And some of them may have an idea that this has been going on, but also many of them may not know how their child has been injured and is their child going to be okay. And most of them probably are not going to have a medical background. And so I think there's the piece of worry about their child. There's certainly potentially a piece about worrying from a social aspect and child protective services aspect about the idea of potentially losing custody of their child. There's so much about the unknown about what injuries, um, as far as prognosis, especially for taking care of a really severely injured child, they also may not know what questions to ask and, um, in general, not have much information about what the next few hours are going to look like. And I think that's one of the areas that we can be really helpful in talking with families to give them a better idea about how this evaluation is going to unfold. I think that is why clear communication is so important in these cases and really taking the time with the families because no matter what the situation is, they're going to bring a lot of anxiety to this. They're worried about their child. They may be hearing things from other family members, neighbors, friends about what to expect that may not necessarily be true. I've also heard things in the media, possibly. They also may have a prior history that could be a negative one with children's services or a distrust of the medical system for a variety of reasons. And so it's important for us to realize that and take that into account when we are communicating. We don't know what the past history has been a lot of times, and so they may be coming at it with already a basic mistrust from what may have happened in the past. I always think about those conversations as so complex because it's not just you and the patient and the parent sitting in the room. It's all of your history. Like you were saying, Emily, those previous conversations that you've had, your previous perceptions of families that may look like them or have been in similar situations, and that colors how you're perceiving this conversation. And then it's all of their past, which you actually have no idea of most of the time, right? Like, is there a historical, with inside of their own family, a history of involvement with CPS, or as you said, Elena, distrust of the system? And, and oftentimes, very justified distrust of this system. And so it's a very full room with these conversations. And it feels like a personal attack, I think, for a lot of families. Understandably, I would be scared too, you know? Yeah, agree completely. And many times when they're walking into the emergency department, they haven't even had the idea of possible child abuse broached to them. The person who referred them or sent them may, but they may not have said anything to the family. So in the ED, we're often the first people to broach that topic, and that can be very difficult as well. Yeah, absolutely. It can be a complete surprise to them. They have no idea that this is even a thing. You know, you come in because your kid has a cough and then find rib fractures on the chest x-ray. Completely unexpected situation. They had communicated that there was a concern just to make sure that the rest of her was okay. That if she had had a, a broken bone that they needed to make sure that, that she was healthy everywhere else. I don't remember if I heard the term non-accidental trauma at first. It kinda didn't hit me in full until we were 
going into the x-ray and having everything done, that there might actually be other things going on. I wanted answers, but it felt almost routine. Like, oh, well, something happened. We need to find out what the cause is. And it kind of didn't hit me until after the full workup had been done. Now, we all work in, you know, very privileged institutions with many resources. But what is our responsibility as emergency medicine physicians to these conversations? Like, for example, is it better to just let the social worker or abuse team have these conversations? I think as the medical provider for the child, it is important for us to be the one that initiates this conversation. And certainly, depending on the resources available at your hospital with regard to social work and access to them to help with these conversations, that certainly can play a role in this. But it's important as the physician taking care of the child that we're the ones that at least introduce this to the families and give them an idea about what to expect. I think if a social worker walks into the room to see the family without the family knowing, then that trust and that conversation is going to be broken. That's why it's so important that we are the ones to initially let the family know what the next steps are going to be. I like that. What is the best timing for that conversation? When do you bring that up, that this process is initiated? I think that can depend on the situation and how sick the child is. And sometimes, you know, they've been referred by Children's Services for an evaluation. So they already know versus what you just described, Julia, a patient who comes up with a cough and you find, you know, rib fractures on a chest x-ray and you're having to backtrack and then raise this concern versus a child who comes into the trauma bay who's severely injured. And, you know, you have to do the medical part first and then circle back to this conversation. So I think it's going to vary But I do think it's important to have the conversation as soon as possible, Um, because if you're starting to do testing, CAT scans, skeletal surveys, the family needs to know why you're doing this. You know, particularly a skeletal survey is a big deal for families, and it's important for them to understand why. I would say the one exception to that is if there is not a legal guardian there. So you have to sometimes be careful of what information you're giving and know who is in the room and who you're having the conversation with. Yeah, I agree. I think each situation is just a little bit different. Doing it before this workup begins is a key piece of it. But you also have to assess the safety of that patient that's there in front of you and the possibility of elopement and having that conversation at the right time before everything gets started, but not too early. So they're sitting there stewing in it, (laughs) waiting for CPS to come. Can be a little bit of an art for sure. I'd like to use a case as kind of a framework to explore this conversation, if that's okay with you guys. So let's say that there's a mom of a four-month-old that comes in. She's all dressed up from work, so she's clearly in after a work shift, and comes in with a four-month-old who has bruises. The baby was with her boyfriend while she worked, and she denies the bruises were there when she left. She thinks that they're a rash, and she doesn't personally have any concerns for abuse. How do you mentally prepare for this conversation? One of the most important things when you're preparing to go in, and I think it's great that you pointed out because preparation here is so key to optimizing chance for a successful therapeutic relationship with the parents. I think if you you know that you're going in there to have that conversation, then mentally preparing, making sure that everyone on the 
team is on the same page about this. And then I think for me personally, and I think in some of the work that we've done, it's been pretty consistent of um, how important it is to check your own emotions at the door and recognize and acknowledge that it is expected to be emotional about this. It's expected to maybe have some strong feelings, especially if you're going in with that specific story. And in your head, you've already sort of been thinking, well, I think I know how, you know, that this bruising occurred. And that can be really tricky to not take that into the room because what this mom knows is that she went to work and she came home and her baby had some marks on the skin that weren't there and she just wants to make sure her baby is okay. And so I think recognizing potentially what's going through her mind and also the differences of what's going through your mind at that time are are important, but really try to make this about taking care of the child and leaving the emotional piece and the anger and the frustration that we feel when we are hearing this story at the door is really important to make sure that your language with the mom is not emotionally charged. It's very important to prepare yourself and then also not to make assumptions. You know, we need to start from scratch. You can't make assumptions of what may have been going on. And I know this can be really hard in a busy ED, but try and make sure you have enough time to be in that room, if at all possible, because the last thing you want is to go in and then have to leave right in the middle of this conversation. So if you can, having time to actually sit down and talk with the mother And then always before I go into the room and when I first go in the room, I try to figure out exactly who is in the room. Sometimes there's three or four people in the room. Hopefully there isn't. There should be hopefully just two. But finding out who those people are so that you know who you're having this conversation with. Yeah, that's a really great tip. Okay, so now you're prepared to start the conversation. How do you actually start it? Give me some phrases that I can use. So I do my normal introductions, you know, with the family. And like I said, ask who everybody is in the room. And then I ask them, I say, what brings you in today? What are you concerned about with your child? Which is generally the the same introduction I use for any case. So I, I try and start off the same way I would with any case to hear what the family is thinking they're there for. In this case, if the mom said, there are marks in this leg. And if she says, I'm worried about bruising, then I would say, I, you know, I'm in agreement. This looks like bruising to me. And this makes me worry that there may could be additional injuries to your baby that we're not aware of. And I think some of the phrasing that I'll use with that is, especially when concerns for abuse in really young patients is, you know, babies don't have a lot of ways of telling us that something may be hurting them or something may be bothering them. Sometimes, especially if we're introducing them, getting into the more complex evaluation with potential for CT scans or x-rays, I'll kind of use that phrasing. But I agree with Elena. I think hearing what the family is concerned about, because it makes it easier, honestly, if their concerns are your exact concerns, that is an easier conversation. If the family says, you know, she had a fever and, and she has this rash on her skin and you're having to sort of more introduce of why you think that this is not something that you would typically expect with a rash, but looks more to you like a bruise, that can be a little bit more challenging of a conversation. So let's say that mom does not expect this to be bruises or injuries. How do you have that difficult conversation that these look like bruises, it's in a four-month-old, this is concerning for abuse? How do you tell her that? After we would have the initial conversation and I would examine the child, you know, and do a thorough exam head to toe, make sure the child is fully undressed and be sure that mom sees that, you know, do a full exam and check everything. Then I would sit down again with her and say, I know that you are concerned as I am about these findings. I think it's important that we do more of an evaluation to see what they may be. And I would say at that point, they are concerning to me for bruising, 
and bruising in a four month old child who is not mobile, not, you know, walking and crawling is not something that we would expect. And so that we would be worried about how this bruising happened, as I'm sure you were worried also. And so that we need to look further into it to try and figure that out. As far as using the word abuse initially, I may not jump right into that. I may say, you know, this looks like bruising. I'm concerned and that we need to look into it because there is always a possibility there could be a medical reason for bruising. And that's why the full exam is so important as well. And so broaching that it's bruising and that we need to look into it in more is always a good start, knowing that you're going to have to have further conversations depending on what the workup shows. Now, if it's pattern bruising and you already have a very high concern for abuse, then at that point, I'm, I may use that I am concerned that someone may have hurt your child and this is not what we would expect. And so we need to look into it more, just as Emily said, for other injuries. Are there any pitfalls that we should avoid in that conversation when you're telling somebody that you are concerned someone hurt their child? I think one of the biggest pitfalls and one of the things that I feel like I learned a lot during my training continue to try to remind myself is making sure to not speculate about a mechanism of an injury. I think it's not uncommon that a parent may say, well, her older sister like is kind of rough with her and or him. And I think you said a boy in this case, and maybe she threw a car and that could have caused the bruise on the leg. Do you think that that could have happened? And I think we've all been in that place where a family is either proposing mechanisms or asking how could this have happened? And, and I think it's really important to not speculate on mechanism of injury for many reasons. Our job is not to figure out how the injury happened. Our job is to identify the injury and to take care of the patient in that setting. And so I think avoiding any speculative language about how this may have happened is important. And I also think it's important when we're asking the families, I will ask them, has there been any, any injuries that you're aware of? Have, you know, that kind of thing, asking them questions, trying not to lead them, but keeping it a very vague opening question to let the family do the talking. Um, but then I think I also have to be really careful about not speculating about what, what could have caused that injury. It's important to be sure the entire care team is on that same page, too, because often families will ask everyone who comes into the room, you know, give a different history and ask them, could this be possible? And it's really important that we all speak the same language and we don't speculate with the family. It's important that we document what they tell us and write that down. And I do ask the families open-ended questions. We're not the investigators. We are there to medically take care of the child and report our concerns. The investigation is for children's services and law enforcement. I love that. I always use the analogy that it's not our job to say it was Mrs. White in the library with a candlestick. It's our job to say there was a murder in the library <laughs> and then to let the others figure that piece of it out. Um, so I, I like that. I also don't speculate on timing. I try not to get too deep into that weeds, um, especially in those initial conversations with the family. And I am very careful not to promise that everything's going to be all right or to promise that they're going to go home with their baby or to tell them that CPS is going to take their child away because that's just not our role. It's not our job. And 
that will also fracture your therapeutic relationship even further if you're promising something that you can't hold to or even how long they're going to be in the hospital for, right? Like even with bronchiolitis, you don't know how long they're going to be in the hospital for. So with a workup like this, it's almost impossible to uh, speculate. Another thing I try to remind myself is physicians taking care of kids. We like to have the answers and be able to provide the answers. And I think in this situation, it is okay and preferred and acceptable oftentimes to say, I don't know, and to leave it at that. Um, And that feels like an uncomfortable place, I feel like, for a lot of physicians to be in. But I think rather than digging ourselves a hole with the family or potentially from a you know, future legal kind of situation saying, I don't know, and empathizing with the families and saying, I know that this has to be so frustrating to not know what has happened with our child right now. I think it's most important that we're taking care of your baby and that we're figuring out what's going on and um, how to get them feeling better. And there will be a lot of time to talk about the other aspects of this in the future. I can tell Emily and I worked together for years because I use the exact same language. It is fine to say, I don't know, and couldn't agree with you more, Julia, about not promising the families things, very important to not promise. Who's going to take the baby home? Who's going to be allowed to visit the baby in the hospital? Like, we don't know any of that. And so best to just say, I'm not sure at this point, but, you know, we will do our best to get those answers for you at a later time. When the doctor came in to kind of just talk to us about history, just to make sure that there wasn't any genetic things going on uh, with her and to talk about some of those things and she took our history and we talked about any family diseases that was when I remember the term non-accidental trauma because the additional injuries that were found were so substantial and I couldn't I couldn't wrap my head around it I felt like somebody was talking to me but it wasn't me I was so confused. I felt just completely disconnected from what was happening. She explained everything to us. I just couldn't understand. I just kept asking, but how? I never would have thought that the the answer to that question would have been something that was so close to home. She did a, a very thorough job of explaining explaining to me, answering my questions. I was just as confused as the doctors were. I never felt like I was being put under the spotlight. (laughs) And I kept asking him how, how could this happen? And he kept telling me, I don't know how this could happen. And then that's when the excuses started. Well, her leg was in the crib. And maybe I fell asleep on the couch with her. Maybe I rolled over on her. Maybe something could have happened. I I had asked him, I said, is there any way your parents could have hurt her? Because you don't, you don't think... (laughs) You don't think it's your partner. You don't think that it's the father of your children. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't understand. I couldn't understand. The social workers didn't come until later. It was explained to us that 
that the sheriff's department would have to be called and that uh, CPS would have to be called. It never felt like an attack, but it I was so scared that I was going to lose them. They're my heart. They're everything. All right, so let's say part of your workup for this kiddo is to get a skeletal survey and a head CT. This becomes very stressful to mom who's concerned about radiation. How do you address that specific concern? This can be a, a great question, especially for parents who are really trying to to advocate for their kid. That's their job as a parent is protect them and advocate for them. And so we, in our case, said, you know, those are great questions. We actually don't know the answer to those. Why don't we talk with some of our radiologists and do some reading on what we can learn about that? And one of the things that we felt like is helpful is to discuss it sort of in the terms of background radiation. Like, for example, some of the language we may use is saying, you know, every day, all of us are exposed to natural background radiation in our environment. And a skeletal survey is equivalent to about 24 days of background radiation. So that's just 24 days of doing your normal daily life. And I think phrasing it in those terms makes it a little bit easier for families to understand how much risk that is. I know some people will do it also in terms of radiation um, and taking like a cross-country flight. Obviously, CT scans are going to have more radiation. CT to the head, I think at the time that we did this work, was equal to about eight months of background radiation. And CT to the abdomen and pelvis was about three years of background radiation. And those numbers certainly can vary depending on the institution where you're working. And so I don't think you have to necessarily be specific, unless you know those specific numbers, maybe not giving those specific numbers is okay, but just giving some general references that it's about this amount, I think can be helpful in making it in terms that parents can understand about the risk, potential risk to their child. Okay. So let's say you get the head CT but mom is now at the point where she is exhausted, understandably frustrated, probably feeling scared now as well, and it's flat refusing the skeletal survey. How do you approach that conversation? So I think going back into the room and talking with her about what her concerns are, you know, is it a concern that her baby has not been allowed to eat during this whole time and her baby is tired and hungry? And if you know the results of the CAT scan and you think it's safe for the baby to eat, you know, could you allow that? And then she would agree to do the skeletal survey. So I think finding out what her concerns are. I think talking to her about what the skeletal survey will give as far as information and how important it is. I find that when parents understand more about why the test is so important, that then you can partner more about why it needs to occur. But I also think it's important to acknowledge what a skeletal survey involves. You know, it's a series of about 20 x-rays where they do have to hold the child down. And, you know, like at our institution, and I'm sure others, the hands are pressed under plexiglass for the x-ray. The child is held in many different positions. And as a parent, that's very hard to see. So I think talking to them about what a skeletal survey involves but also what information will be gleaned from that and why it's so important and finding out what their worries and fears are can be really helpful. I think one way that you can potentially 
decrease the chance that this may happen is to have an upfront conversation with the family from the beginning about all the tests that are going to be performed. And sometimes we may not know. We may start with one x-ray and then find something we didn't expect and need to do more. But I think especially from the moment you know that, gosh, I'm going to be doing labs and a head CT and a skeletal survey, and I know I'm doing all of these things, having that conversation at the beginning can be helpful so that the families know from a tentative sort of timeline, recognizing, saying, you know, this evaluation can take several hours. We know that this can be frustrating and time consuming. And please let us know if you have questions or there are things that we can do to help you or your baby be more comfortable during all of this. Okay, I'm going to give you a real hard one now. After your wonderful, helpful conversation, you let the baby eat, they still say no to the skeletal survey. What are you going to do? So that's a hard one. And I've definitely had it happen. If I feel strongly that this is going to be reported and it's abuse and it's very important to get this work up, then I will have the conversation with the family that, you know, we are very concerned and that this is going to be reported, which means, you know, social work, children's services will be involved. And really, it is better for them to cooperate and have the testing done um, so that the complete workup can be done. What I try to help the family understand that working with us and partnering with us will, in the end, be better for them and for their child because Children's Services is going to want us to be able to give them the full medical picture. And if we can't because the family is refusing it, it's going to make for a more difficult time with Children's Services. So I will have a frank discussion with the family about that. One thing that can be hard with this and may vary state to state is that in some of the less obvious cases, the parents may have the right to refuse these tests, but also explaining to them what that means. It's hard. It's a really fine line to not come across as I'm threatening you with, if you don't do this, then, and I think that's a really hard line to walk. And so just being honest with them about that, um, it's hard. And I feel like it's really hard to not cross a line and then make it a very sort of combative situation. But I do think at that point, honesty with the family about the situation and what that looks like is important. Yeah, those are um, some of my least favorite moments. And I think we have to be really careful because there are times when, yes, if you're highly concerned, legally, you have the right to get that. And that is the right thing to do. But we need to work very closely with CPS and law enforcement and our own hospital legal system to make sure that we're doing this correctly. Most of the time, it's not an emergency. And letting CPS and law enforcement do their investigative part and then get to that skeletal survey and then get to that whatever that next test is. Unless the child is dying in front of you, most of this workup is not an extreme emergency. And so letting the people that have the legal right to do this get involved and play their part is an important step because we don't want to be accused of kidnapping a child or, you know, this is how you end up on the front page of the news. Julia, I think in the vast majority of cases, this is successful, these conversations. But there have been ones that I've had that have definitely not been successful. I've had parents, you know, pick up their child and and try to walk out of the emergency department and in some points, it is best to delay that testing until children's services and, and law enforcement may be involved. I have had parents leave with their child without the testing done because they are still the legal guardian of that child. 
But that would lead immediately to a report to Children's Services and law enforcement. And I let the families know that and that it will be problematic because then it will be an automatic report. But I would say that is rare, thank goodness. That does not happen that commonly. When it does, though, it's very stressful and it's not a situation that you ever forget. Emily, what kind of phrasing do you use when you're telling the family that you have risen to the level of of reporting to CPS? Do you have any tips for telling them that you've called CPS? This is tricky, and I think this is one of those things that working at a um, a large quaternary academic center, we have some extra resources that you may not have in the community, specifically with having social workers in-house 24 hours a day. So oftentimes, I'm partnering with our social workers and helping have those conversations because they have so much extra training in that area. I think it's different in a community setting. And if you don't have access to a social worker with that, I still think it's important to partner with all of the people that you do have access to. But I think when you know that in your head that you're going to be reporting this, you know, sitting down with the family again, you know, sitting down next to them, eye contact, empathy, and saying, I'm really worried about this injury to your child. And again, I think it could be a little bit different about, you know, if, a, if there's a femur fracture, parents may recognize, yes, this is a big injury versus if it's bruising and they say, well, I think another kid could have done this or in they're, you know, if they're not on the same page about that. But I think in general saying, you know, I'm really worried about this injury to your baby and I'm worried that this could have been something that didn't happen by accident. And it's part of my job as a doctor who takes care of kids to, recognize when an injury may have happened to a child that might not have been an accident. And so in this case, I'm really worried about this injury to your child, and I am going to need to let our social services, child protective services, whatever the phrasing that it may be for your state, uh, know about this injury. I will use the term abuse at this point. I try not to use non-accidental trauma wording because I don't think families understand that. And so I think it's important to make sure you're using language that they understand and not medical terminology. And then I ask them, you know, what their questions or concerns are, because that's going to open up a lot of emotions for them. And you may find that the family shuts down and, and doesn't want to talk to you. They, they may become emotional and, and start, you know, crying in some cases, or they may be very matter of fact about it. I've had it go down so many different ways. So I think you just have to be prepared that you're not going to know what the reaction is going to be once you say this. Even if things have been going perfectly up until that moment, once you say you're reporting to Children's Services, it may completely change. So you have to be ready for that. I like to play the mandated reporter card. I will say, you know, in the state of California, where I live, when we see these types of injuries, California says that we have to report them to CPS and law enforcement so that they can get some more information. I can see that your goal is to protect your baby, to keep your baby safe, that you want what's best for your baby. And that's what our goal is as well. And that's what the state's goal is as well. And so we all have to work together. And I thank them if we've had an open on our honest conversation for sharing and um, honoring me by sharing that difficult conversation with them or that information. And that I, you know, I say this is a really hard spot to be. I recognize you know, how challenging this must be to even hear these words. And so my recommendations to all families is that you 
keep that open spirit and share. Don't fill in information that you don't know and just say exactly what you do know and be open and honest about it because that's everybody's goal. And if we're all open and honest with each other, then we can get to that spot where your baby is in a safe spot. When you're talking about the timing of introducing the um, child protective services aspect, if I have a child that's coming in with severely injured, going to an intensive care kind of situation, like if I know this child is going to a higher level of care, that's not the time that I'll bring that up in the emergency department. Even if I'm concerned about that, I won't say in that moment, I know your kid is sick, but also I need to let you know that I'm going to be reporting this kind of situation. I do think there are times when there is a, especially in the setting, I think of the critically ill patient, that's the one that comes to mind most often where, yes, the family may have questions. I think it's fair to answer those questions, but I think at that point, those conversations can be deferred until their child is either a little bit more stable or they've had more time to process the the level of injury to their child. Yeah. And that also brings up a good point about transfer, right? Like a lot of our colleagues in community hospitals are transferring to a children's hospital. And so that can be another point of like, these are concerning injuries. They're going to get more information for you and defer a little bit in that spot as well. Exactly. Okay, let's be honest. Bias is a real part of child abuse evaluations. We have more and more information and understanding this better. We know that our own biases, societal biases, it impacts how we do these evaluations. We want to be as objective as we can. But let's say that a family feels like you've been biased or says that race has played a role in this evaluation. How do you address that difficult piece of that conversation? I think it's important that we all recognize, first of all, that we all have biases and that situations like this may bring those out even more, particularly if you identify with the family in some way. So that is very important. Even before the family brings this up, I have the discussion that we do this in a very standardized approach that every child where we have this worry about that we do the same testing every time and that we do this based on the medical evidence that this is what needs to happen. And so to reassure the family that we are approaching this from a very standardized place, um, I think can help with some of that. Yeah, I think acknowledging it is an important piece with inside of yourself and with inside of your team as well. And, you know, this is why standardized approaches are important at every institution. Everybody should have something that they can lean back on and not take it personally about that they themselves can look at and make sure that their bias isn't coloring. And so that it doesn't become as much of a piece of that evaluation and also that they can point to as the way to avoid how race and socioeconomic status and all of those other things that can bias us color the evaluation. I use my my hospital app and every single time something would happen I would get a notification and I, I almost wish that the notifications would stop coming because I stopped looking at them because after the initial x-rays when everything else was happening, I would rather have talked to a doctor about everything than to receive the information first. 
because I don't understand it. <laughs> we heard about all of the breaks from the doctor. She was the first person to tell us about the multiple fractures all over her body. So I was thankful to receive that information from the doctor and to not, <laughs> to not receive it from an app. She was very straightforward about it. After we had gone through the, the history, from what I remember, she tells, she tells us, well, I do have some more information to report. We found several more fractures and she went through the list. And I just remember feeling disconnected. I felt like this was that this couldn't be happening to us. That it could that this couldn't be real. There's I couldn't I just couldn't wrap my head around what was happening. This is a very complex, difficult conversation, clearly. How do you guys take care of yourself after the conversation? Or in general, as you have these difficult conversations, what's one tip that you would give people for maintaining sa sanity, mental health? Still trying to work on that. It is, <laughs> it's hard. Um, some debriefing with the team can be helpful afterward, particularly on a very difficult case if the child is very injured, very ill. I think taking some time afterward to talk to the others of those involved in the case just to, you know, see the emotions they're feeling and to share a little bit can be really helpful. I think sometimes if you can, taking just a few minutes to walk away can be helpful too. Even if it's just, you know, five minutes um, to go get something to drink before you go right back into seeing more patients can, can help. And then I think, you know, after the fact, sometimes Speaking to a trusted colleague or peer can be helpful, not necessarily, obviously, about case specifics, but just kind of how you're doing and how they've handled it. At our institution, we have a peer-to-peer -peer program, or when there are particularly difficult cases, you know, just a peer will reach out to see, you know, how are you doing? And so those can be helpful as well. And then sometimes for me, it's just getting away from work and just, you know, putting up that balance of being home and, and being like, you know, I'm not going to not going to think about this right now. I'm not going to do work right now. And then doing something that, you know, I enjoy, whether it's spending time with my family or being outside, just finding what that is. I mean, this is one of the reasons why working in healthcare is so great when we work in teams, because there are other people that are sharing this experience with you. And so I think having the ability to debrief in the moment and then also keeping those lines of communication open, because we all know that once we go home and we've had time to sit on this and had time to process this, there are other things that we may think about. And so I think, especially if you're in a uh, position or a team leader kind of situation, making sure that all members of the team know that you are happy to and would love to debrief things further with the team if other people have other specific thoughts about this case or ways that in the future that maybe we could have done things a little bit differently that might have led to a little bit of a different outcome. I think that's always helpful. And then I agree with Elena having a, you know, a, a peer. Um, truly, when you're in difficult situations like this, it's really hard for someone who hasn't also been there to understand how challenging these can be. And so taking advantage of friendships that way is, is extremely important. Now, neither of you said booze. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, you know, when I was in residency, I remember walking out of the room of a uh, child that had pretty significant uh, abuse in their past. And I, you know, checked in with a bedside nurse and she was like, yep, that conversation put another mile on my uh, running at home. <laughs> and I think that that's a that's a really healthy way to get that out is with exercise or finding intention in some other activity that we're doing um, to kind of channel that frustration, that energy, that vulnerability that you may have felt as well. Yeah, absolutely. My dog gets an extra long walk after yes. bad situations <laughs> like that. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for your time. Anything else that you think people should know about these difficult conversations? Wherever you are, just know what your resources are. You know, do you have social work? If you don't have social work, you know, what is children's services availability? Not all counties have 24-7 children's services availabilities. It's better to know that ahead of time than trying to figure it out when you're in the middle of a very stressful situation. Pulse check. These are challenging conversations for us and for families. Start with a deep breath. The best way to mitigate the stress is to communicate clearly and consistently. This may be a complete surprise to the family and feel like an attack. Before you enter the room, take a moment to address your own feelings and biases. Then leave those at the door to avoid emotional language and speculation. It is not our job to be police, prosecutor, judge, or jury. Then explain the evaluation in a step-by-step -step manner, including timeframes if possible. Address caregiver concerns as honestly and accurately as possible. Don't promise anything. In fact, if the child is going to be admitted for further workup with specialists, it's okay to defer the discussion until the team has more information. Don't speculate. Best practice is to have the discussion about reporting to Child Protective Services with your ED social worker before CPS arrives if you feel it is safe to do so. Okay, that episode has been in the queue for a while. It is an important topic, but we really wanted this discussion to be accompanied by resources for everyone because we want clinicians to make consistent evidence-based decisions when it comes to child abuse. We need to report intelligently and not over or under report. So I worked with the EIIC or Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation and Improvement Center to create a toolkit called a PEAK or Pediatric Education and Advocacy Kit to help emergency department physicians identify and care for abused children. This podcast will be a part of that toolkit. You can find that resource in the show notes or by going to emscimprovement.center and looking for the Child Abuse PEAK. Right. And maybe we need another episode looking at how bias impacts our work and how the approach is changing. I love it. There's been a massive paradigm shift with inside of the child protection world, and I spend a lot of time thinking about this. Well, in the meantime, we hope you find this helpful and please share it with your colleagues. Find us on social media at Impulse Podcast. Next up, we talk about reproductive health in the ED. So stay tuned for that complicated topic. Thank you to our department for having social workers around to help us with these complicated conversations. And thank you to OM Productions for always pushing us forward. Speaking of that, we now have closed captioning to our episodes. If your particular podcast player allows it, it will display properly, or the website will play it if you click on the CC in the player. Okay, that's it for now. See you next time. <laughs>